Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his death, his resurrection on our behalf. We thank you for the love that you have poured out for your people through that great event. We come to celebrate. We come to worship. And we come longing to hear you speak. So, Father, would you speak to each one of us here as we open your word. Give us grace to hear. Give us grace to receive what you have for us. Help us to focus our attention on the great work that's been done for us. And help us to see more clearly just how much you've loved us. Thank you, Father, for your presence with us this morning. We rejoice in you, and we ask humbly that you would speak in a way that changes us, that grows us, that strengthens us, that encourages us. Build our hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Children can make their way down to junior church at this point. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. That's a line that I picked up from an Australian Old Testament Hebrew scholar by the name of Francis Anderson, who died in 2020 at the age of 94. At least 15 years before his death, that statement is how he had begun answering the question, How are you doing? I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Can I invite you this morning to think about your own suffering? Make a mental list of your bodily ailments, your relational struggles, your work frustrations, your grieving losses, your anxieties, your anger about the culture. Maybe you're over some of those things. Maybe you're healthier than you've ever been. Maybe your relationships are strong right now. Add to your list hurts of the past, illnesses of the past. Add to your list fears about the future, the scary cancer diagnosis, the loss of a beloved spouse, the deterioration of aging. Now, can you say with Dr. Anderson... I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Think about the resurrection promised to us in the Scriptures. Can you see how the resurrection to come, that glorious guarantee, will solve all of your problems, fix all that's broken in your life? If you have trouble thinking about your future resurrection in concrete terms... Perhaps a summary review is in order. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul seems dumbfounded that there could be people in the church of Corinth believing and teaching that there would be no resurrection to come. And he provides some instruction to shape our understanding of what the resurrection will be like. He uses analogies and comparisons. He uses the image of a seed that produces a plant. 
Our bodies right now are like the seed. Our resurrected bodies are like the plant that grew from that seed. The plant looks a lot different and functions a lot different than the seed, yet it was the seed that became the plant. We pick up his explanation in verses 42 to 44 of 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul characterizes our bodies right now as perishable. They wear out and die. And dishonorable. They fail us in ways that can embarrass us. And weak. They start weak and they end weak. And they're pretty weak in between. By contrast, our resurrected body will be imperishable, unable to wear out and die, glorious, unable to fail and bring shame and powerful, able to do things that we probably can't even imagine. But in verse 44, Paul's contrast is harder for us to understand and conceptualize. He speaks of our current bodies as natural and our resurrected bodies as spiritual. We have a tendency to use the word spiritual as an opposite to physical, but that is definitely not what Paul means. When you read the word spiritual in your Bible, particularly in Paul's letters, almost every time Paul certainly means something associated with the Holy Spirit, and that may or may not include a physical reality. Paul's spiritual body here doesn't mean a non-physical body. Theologian Wayne Grudem is helpful here. He explains, Such a body is not at all non-physical, but it is a physical body raised to the degree of perfection for which God originally intended it. Grudem paraphrases verse 44 like this, It is sown a natural body, subject to the characteristics and desires of this age and governed by its own sinful will. It is raised a spiritual body, completely subject to the will of the Holy Spirit and responsive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. Now, I think Paul means more than this, but certainly not less that Paul defines our resurrected bodies as spiritual bodies implies that it is the Holy Spirit specifically who transforms our bodies into this new state in which, think about this, all that we are is totally submissive at all times and in every way to the Holy Spirit's continued eternal involvement in our eternal lives. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul indicates that Jesus will initiate this transformation when he returns. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This likeness to Jesus' glorious resurrected body provides other information that we can use to fuel our hope. What was Jesus' resurrected body like? We can summarize from the four gospel, uh, gospel accounts, and we can recognize points of continuity and discontinuity. There were ways His resurrected body was like His body before He died, and there were ways His resurrected body was different from His body before He died. First, some points of continuity. His resurrected body was definitely physical. It could be seen with human eyes and touched with human hands, and he ingested food. He retained scars from his death. We might wonder if that's a unique feature of Jesus' body. His scars have a unique purpose to permanently mark him as the man who had been crucified for the salvation of the world. He also had memories of his life before death. He spoke to the disciples, reminding them of conversations they had had earlier, and he knew the Scriptures. But there were definitely some remarkable differences. Paul described his resurrected body as glorious in Philippians 3.21, and in 1 Corinthians 15.43, he speaks of believers being raised in glory. At bare minimum, we can conclude that Jesus' body was now visibly indicating His worth, that He deserved worship, and you could see it just by looking at Him. Our glorified bodies will be that splendid as well. C.S. Lewis famously challenged us to remember, quote, that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Jesus was unrecognizable even to His closest friends, except by some revelation. And He seems to be able to appear and disappear. This is a glimpse of what resurrection will provide for all who trust in Jesus, the resurrected King. This will be a good resurrection. Indeed, may the Lord grant us all the grace to remember and believe the promise of this good resurrection to come, especially when we are confronted with suffering in all of its forms in this life. The reason we start this morning with a reminder of the resurrection is because Daniel 12.2 contains the clearest, most straightforward announcement of this event in the whole Old Testament. And I am convinced that this announcement is given right here for Daniel's readers, ancient and modern, for the very purpose of fixing our hope in the right place, the only place that can really fix all that ails us, the resurrection to come. But the hope of a good resurrection is accompanied by a warning of a bad resurrection as well. So let's consider carefully the first three verses of Daniel chapter 12. You'll recall, perhaps, that these final three chapters of Daniel's book record the final visionary experience of the wise man, Daniel, the prophet, Daniel. In chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1, Daniel recorded the setting of his visionary experience, explaining how an anonymous angel revealed to him some mysterious information about heavenly combat between 
angelic beings that seems to have some bearing on earthly events of history. Then the rest of chapter 11 sketched out in vague but impressive detail earthly conflicts that would span several hundred years starting in Daniel's day during the reign of the Persian kings moving through the near constant warfare within the Greek empire between the north and the south with the Jews quite literally caught in the crossfire and then climaxing with a prophetic sketch of events in the Roman empire highlighting the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. At least that's how I understand the historical fulfillment of the angel's prophetic words. As these final chapters are unified, we can draw out a summary message. What's the point of this final visionary experience as Daniel has written it down for us? God rules over the details of the future, even as that future consists of wars and rumors of wars, great tribulation for God's people, and the increase of wickedness, all leading, however, to the grand climax of God's judgment and the salvation of the remnant in the resurrection of the dead. The interplay of great tribulation and the resurrection of the dead concerns us today. So follow along as I read Daniel 12, 1 to 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. First, let's consider the rise of Michael. The most unclear part of this passage is the first three words, at that time. Does that mean after the events just described? Does that mean at the same time as the events just described? Or does that mean during the time frame related to the events just described? The first line of verse 1 is interesting because it does shift our attention for a brief moment to an event in heaven. And just as quickly our gaze is brought back down to earth. When does Michael arise or stand up to act in relation to the events just described? I don't think we have enough information in this passage to be sure. The phrase, at that time, is very general. It can definitely refer to a time period that started before the events just described. As an example, consider Judges 14.4, speaking of Samson's request for a Philistine wife. His father and mother did not know that it was from Yahweh, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, the Philistines didn't just start ruling over Israel in conjunction with Samson's desiring a Philistine wife. No, they had been oppressing Israel probably for about 20 years before Samson found his Philistine wife. So, here in Daniel 12, I'm inclined to suggest that at that time might mean at an earlier period of time before the specific events just described. And as I tried to demonstrate last week, since I see a tight connection between 
the prophecy detailed in 1140 to 45 and the prophecy of 926 to 27, I'm inclined to connect Michael's rise with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. For support, I look to other references to Michael in Scripture. Jude 9 doesn't help us, as it refers to some unknown conflict between Michael and Satan having to do with Moses' dead body, presumably long before Daniel's day. But Revelation 12, 7-9 might be helpful. There, John had just seen a vision of a woman giving birth to the Messiah with the threat of a hideous dragon outside the door. John saw the successful birth of the baby boy, and then he saw that boy taken up to God's throne in heaven. We looked at this passage in detail this past Christmas, and I suggested that what John sees next in verses 7 to 9 reveals what actually happened in heaven after Jesus, the Messiah, ascended to heaven to take his rightful place on the throne at the right hand of God. Look at those verses, Revelation 12, 7 to 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I believe Daniel 12 and Revelation 12 line up right here. Michael was given the privilege of booting the devil out of heaven so that he can no longer accuse God's people of sin in God's courtroom. Never again. Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, erasing the record of debt that stood against us so that the big gun of the rulers and authorities has been forever taken away. That happened in heaven 2,000 years ago because of what happened on earth 2,000 years ago. When Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to sit on his glorious throne. As in Daniel 9, 25 to 27, the 70 weeks prophecy, where the death of the Messiah was connected tightly with the destruction of the temple, so here we shouldn't be surprised if Daniel's final vision focuses on the destruction of the temple while still having reference to the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Daniel and his immediate audience would not have been able to make any sense out of the reference to Michael. The angel simply says Michael will stand up. But the angel didn't describe what he would do or why that's important for people to know. He leaves it mysterious. I believe John's vision in Revelation 12 fills in what Michael would do. Yes, the rise of Michael in heaven took place before the destruction of the temple on earth by some 30 years. But if Michael's rise in heaven is connected with the death and resurrection of Jesus on earth, then we can see the angel here merely connecting the events of the death of the Messiah with its heavenly aftermath, the rise of Michael in victory over Satan with the destruction of the temple. This is more cryptic and mysterious from Daniel's vantage point than the way Jesus connects his own impending death with the judgment and destruction of the temple, but it's the same thing. Thus, what comes next? The time of trouble. In the next part of Daniel 12, 1, we read, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. When Daniel eleven thirty six 36 to 45 
is taken to refer to the aggressive actions of the final Antichrist figure, it is usually speculated that he will turn his animosity completely against the Jews after having befriended them and made a covenant with them three and a half years earlier, revealing himself as the enemy of God and God's people that he always was. At the midpoint of that seven-year period, then Michael's rise would take place. Satan would be, at that time, cast out of heaven, and the period referred to as the Great Tribulation would begin. I've already indicated several reasons I don't see that summary fitting what the Bible actually says. If Michael's rise took place in connection with Jesus' death and resurrection, then this time of trouble must begin sometime after that. I don't think we should take the phrase time of trouble to be a title for a specific period of time. And I don't think we should take the phrase Great Tribulation as a title for a specific period of time. This particular phrase appears ten times in the Old Testament. And it always very clearly refers to a generic hard time. The Hebrew word translated trouble is a term that has a physical reference to pressure or stress. It's very much parallel to its Greek equivalent, usually translated tribulation, in our English New Testaments, which conveys the image of being squeezed in a vice or crushed under a weight. Often, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, is brought into connection with Daniel 12, 1. Jeremiah had said, Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. It is very strange to me that this verse gets used to support this idea of a period of tribulation at the end of history that's supposed to be a time of suffering, particularly for the Jews. The reason it seems strange to me is because those who think that's what Jeremiah is announcing also believe that the church will be saved out of this period of tribulation by means of a rapture whereby God snatches the church off the planet so that believers will not experience the tribulation of this period. Now, I'm not questioning the possibility of that being taught in Scripture at this point, okay? I'm not questioning that possibility. You all know I don't see it that way, personally. But the strangeness that I'm drawing your attention to is that Jeremiah 30, verse 7, promises that the Jews will be saved out of this time of distress... But those who believe Jeremiah is announcing a period of suffering for the Jews at the very end of history also believe that the Jews will live through the whole thing, at least those who survive. In any case, it seems far more likely contextually that the time of distress that Jeremiah is describing is the exile in Babylon, which the Jews were saved out of when they returned to the land of Israel under the Persian king Cyrus. But I digress. The angel announces here to Daniel that there will be a time of distress or trouble or tribulation such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. I believe this describes the season you and I are living in right now. And I believe it started either when Jesus left the planet or in connection with the Jewish revolts, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and it will not end until Jesus returns. How does one measure the severity of suffering? Can we use the pain scale familiar from the emergency room? On a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is your pain? 
Or do we measure it by the number of dead bodies, casualties of warfare or pandemic or so-called natural disaster? More than 20 times in the Bible, something is described in these extreme terms or similar terms to indicate the greatest or worst of something. Much of the book of Daniel was written to prepare the Jewish people who would go through intense suffering to know what to expect and to trust God all the way through it. Could it be that these extreme comparisons and figure, are figures of speech meant to convey the incalculable suffering God's people are to expect, especially as history moves toward its final climax, without intending to specify a time specific, a specific period of time. I think that's very likely. But then, the angel provides a promise of deliverance for Daniel's people. Look at the end of verse 1. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. There's that at that time phrase again. The angel says that tribulation is coming, but Daniel's people will be delivered. But then the angel narrows the definition of Daniel's people. We may too quickly assume that when we read, for example, in Daniel 9, that Gabriel had told Daniel about 70 weeks being decreed for your people, that the, that, that means the prophecy only deals with ethnically Jewish people. Here in Daniel 12, 1, we get a specific definition of who Daniel's people really are. They are everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. What book? Certainly, this must be the book of life, referred to several times in the book of Revelation. If Daniel's people are those whose names are recorded in the book of life, then that must include the Jewish remnant of Daniel's own day, those who trusted the promises of the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament period, and all Jews and Gentiles throughout history who have since trusted the Messiah, Jesus, for salvation. We are Daniel's people. Thus, the angel tells Daniel and all those who would later read Daniel's book that God's people will suffer, many will be killed, but they all will be saved, delivered, rescued. And the angel says they will be delivered at that time. How will they be delivered? The only other time in the Old Testament this exact verb for being saved, appears, is in Joel 2, 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. You may recognize those words as being quoted in the New Testament. On the first Pentecost, after the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Peter drew from Joel's prophecy at just this point to explain their being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the availability of salvation for all who would believe. This is the time of salvation. Yes, that time is a time of suffering and tribulation for God's people. But that time is also the only time available for the salvation of sinners. Paul also would quote these words from Joel in Romans 10.13. How do you know if your name's written in the book of life? Have you called on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation? Have you believed in the one who died and rose and ascended? 
Have you experienced the powerful work of the Holy Spirit transforming your life as you trust Jesus? That's the only evidence we're offered in the Scriptures for how you may know if your name has been recorded in the book of life. So trust Him now. The alternative is not pretty. Revelation 20.15 makes it clear. And if, any, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. For God's people, this season of tribulation is limited. Oh, it may last your whole life. You may suffer tribulation for a hundred years in this life, if you're a Christian that long. But even a hundred years of suffering is not even a blink of an eye when compared with an eternity of joy and pleasure and happiness in the presence of our Savior. But the ultimate good news comes in verse 2, where we get the clearest, most straightforward announcement of the future resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. Look at verse 2 again. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the only place in the Old Testament where we read about two separate final experiences for two different groups of people. It is also the only place in the Old Testament where the precise phrase eternal life appears. For whatever reason, however, the angel doesn't speak in universal terms. He speaks of many who will wake up from their sleep of death. Not having any prior biblical revelation at this point about the nature of the future and final resurrection, perhaps the angel condescends to human limitations and only provides a partial picture. He focuses on many. There's going to be a lot of them. But Jesus alludes to this verse, but then expands and clarifies the picture in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The angel had said many. Jesus says all. Jesus also clarifies the nature of the two groups. Those who will experience eternal life are those who have done good. Those who will experience shame and everlasting contempt, as the angel had said, or judgment, as Jesus says, are those who have done evil. The relationship between doing good deeds and eternal life is complicated and need not detain us today. Suffice it to say that God's grace is determinative for salvation, for eternal life, enabling our faith in Jesus and our good deeds along the way. As I like to say often, our effort is necessary, but not decisive. God's grace is decisive. Everyone on the planet has done evil. So Jesus is certainly implying that those who have done good are those who have had their evil deeds forgiven by His grace. Similarly, in Acts 24.15, Paul speaks to his Jewish audience about their common hope that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The everlasting contempt awaiting those who have done evil, those who do not receive the forgiveness offered by Jesus, will be experienced in the lake of fire. 
The word the angel uses, translated contempt, only appears in one other verse in the Old Testament, the final verse of the book of Isaiah, describing the aftermath of God's final judgment. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The word translated abhorrence is the word the angel uses in Daniel 12 too. But you probably also recognize the middle of this verse from several of Jesus' statements describing hell. The term contempt or abhorrence here in Isaiah describes burning, rotting, and deformed, resurrected bodies after God's final judgment. Those who don't trust in Jesus during their lives will be raised from the dead, but their resurrected bodies would make us turn away in horror if we could visualize them. As it turns out, even Jesus doesn't tell us everything there is to know about this final universal resurrection of the dead. On this topic especially, the phrase progressive revelation is appropriate. The angel in Daniel 12 and Jesus himself in John 5 and Paul in Acts 24 all make it sound like this resurrection will be one singular event. It'll all happen at the same time. The resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust is one big event. It is only in Revelation chapter 20 that we finally learn that the resurrection of life, what John calls there the first resurrection, Revelation 20 verse 5, will occur 1,000 years before the resurrection of judgment. It's common for those who believe in the rapture and resurrection of the church prior to a seven-year tribulation period to suggest that this reference to resurrection in Daniel 12, 2, as well as Jesus' comments in John 5, should be limited to Old Testament saints, which would happen then after the tribulation period. Then saints who would be martyred during the tribulation period will also be resurrected at that time. These two groups, Old Testament saints and so-called tribulation saints, being raised from the dead is said to complete the first resurrection of Revelation 20 verse 5. For them, the first resurrection includes four separate stages at three or four, depending on who you listen to, separate times. The first resurrection includes the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits, which occurred 2,000 years ago now. The resurrection of church saints before the tribulation period begins, and also the resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints after the tribulation period ends. This seems to me overly complicated. Jesus' resurrection is indeed presented as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But then in verses 20 to 20, 22 to 23, Paul then adds, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I see only two stages reflected there, and I don't see good reason to add in two or three or four extra stages Rather, those who belong to Christ ultimately includes Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, and their resurrection will occur all at once when the Messiah returns. 
This seems to fit with what we see in Daniel 12, 2 and John 5, 28 and 29. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, which guarantees the final harvest of the resurrection of the righteous, what John calls the first resurrection in Revelation 20, verse 5. Also, Revelation 25 fits with 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 which says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Daniel's angel implies that those who awake to everlasting life are everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And then in verse 3 of Daniel 12, we'll see how he characterizes this group as those who are wise Jesus refers to those who have done good. Paul speaks of those who belong to Christ and the dead in Christ. John sees in his vision the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. These different descriptions, I believe, all describe the same group of people. The angel in Daniel 12 provides this promise as a word of great hope for God's suffering people. Even though we suffer in this life, the resurrection will be our vindication. We will be shown to be in the right, justified for having believed in a crucified Messiah. And God Himself will be vindicated as well. For in the resurrection of life, God's suffering people are rewarded for their faith and their faithfulness. And in the resurrection of judgment, God executes perfect and final justice on all who rejected Him or ignored Him and lived for other things during their lifetime on earth. And finally, in verse 3, the angel encourages wisdom for this life by speaking of the shining of the wise. Consider verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The wise ones, a word used to describe Daniel in the opening chapter of the book, are encouraged to maintain their wisdom in the face of great tribulation in light of the promise of resurrection. But I suspect that the shining described here is not only referring to the shine of our new glorified bodies. Since he describes the wise further as those who turn many to righteousness, he seems to be speaking of what we do in this life. We lead others to righteousness by pointing people to the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who offers the verdict of righteous to guilty sinners. I can hardly do better than commentator J. Paul Tanner who writes, They are wise because they have set their minds on the Word of God and have learned to apply it to life situations, especially in times of crisis. By their instruction, they help bring many to righteousness. They instruct them about God's way of being righteous and point them to Messiah Jesus, in whom one is made righteous by faith. The Apostle Paul seems to pick up the language, this language in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, where he writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
Paul highlights grumbling and disputing, complaining and arguing as something that could be demonstrating our blameworthiness, our guilt, whining and fussing, particularly in the face of suffering, casts a shadow over the light that God intends we shine in the world. When we are complaining or arguing with each other, refusing to pursue unity and peace, you can be sure that we are not looking like God's children. We are not reflecting the wisdom that God intends to shape our lives. Instead, we look like fools. Later in Philippians, Paul gets specific with a couple of women, pleading with them to agree. And he describes them as among his fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In Philippians 4.3. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the positive instruction on what shining should look like. In Matthew 5.16, we read, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a tension in the Sermon on the Mount at this point. Later in the sermon, Jesus will say, Don't pray to be heard. Don't give to be praised. Don't fast to be seen. Motive matters. But it is important that people see us obeying God in public. How will people see our good works and draw the right conclusion? How will people not just see our good works... And praise us. Well, I suppose it matters how we talk about the good things that we do. Our instinct might be to not talk about what we do at all. Fearing a prideful drawing attention to ourselves. But we could also talk about the good things we do in such a way that points to God. Gives credit to the Lord explains how He is the ultimate cause of the good we do. That seems to be part of our responsibility as well. To deflect people's attention from us, from praising us, to the true source of every bit of our goodness and our righteousness, the Lord Himself. We could put Daniel's point simply like this. Shine now. During this life, in your wise behavior, and you will shine later in your glorified bodies. As we conclude, let's remember that the fifth kingdom has come. Remember, the book of Daniel depicts five kingdoms, not four. Nebuchadnezzar's statue depicted four human kingdoms, but then the whole thing was destroyed by a stone that grew into a great mountain. Daniel's vision of chapter 7 depicted four beastly kingdoms on earth overcome by the arrival in heaven of one like a son of man who was enthroned at the right hand of God and shares his rule with the saints on earth. The fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire and Jesus invaded the Roman Empire with an invasion like no other in history and he conquered with a victory like no other in history. We are citizens of that fifth kingdom. Jesus was forthright and direct with his followers about what we are to expect in this world. John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
The victory has been won, and yet tribulation continues. Paul and Barnabas likewise encouraged their churches by reminding them of the necessity that we go through many tribulations before we will enter our full resurrected experience of God's kingdom. Jesus told the disciples of the great tribulation to come because they would experience some of that. The Apostle John, the final living apostle, opened the book of Revelation, addressing real churches at the end of the first century, and he identified himself this way in Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He said... He was a partner, a fellowshipper, a sharer in the tribulation and the kingdom with those churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor. And the tribulation overlaps with the kingdom. Citizens of Jesus' kingdom experience the tribulation. And they do it with patient endurance. Thus the call of the book of Daniel is the same as the call of the book of Revelation. John makes it clear when he pauses the record of his mind-boggling visionary experiences to address the churches directly. At the end of Revelation 13, 9, he says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And again, in fourteen twelve, he expands... Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Are you among the number of the saints? Has your name been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, as John titles it in Revelation 13, 8? Are you trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, living a spirit-empowered life, of repentance and obedience, following the Lamb wherever He leads. Today is the day of salvation. While He is still speaking, do not harden your hearts. There will come a day when He will speak a word of final judgment. When He returns on the white horse, He will slay all who remain in rebellion against Him by speaking a word. But today, and on until that day, He speaks a word of salvation. He offers grace and mercy to all who will have it. As we close our time together this morning, I invite you to stand and sing with us. And I I challenge you yet again, as you sing these familiar words, perhaps to many of you, from In Christ Alone, think about what you're singing. Express your faith in song to our resurrected King.